So the first reading comes from the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 to verses 8, and you can find that on page 108 in the Pew Bibles. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And the New Testament reading tonight comes from Titus chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 11 to uh, 15a. And that's on page 845. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Thanks, Jay. Good to see you. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor, uh, one of the pastors here, and you've joined us looking at Titus, uh, week, one, two, three, week four of a six-week series in Titus. If you lived in, um, in Peru in 1998, you might have experienced what's called the uh, El Nino floods. Uh, massive floods came onto that country. Uh, these massive, massive mudslides happened that came down and down and down the mountain. And here's a picture, a picture of the mudslides. Uh, cars were destroyed, lives were lost, homes were destroyed. Uh, but for one woman that night, she kind of experienced her, her living nightmare. This woman, floods came down, mud came down the hill, and it took her house off its foundations, and her house was taken swept away with the mud. That's pretty traumatic, isn't it? Until I tell you inside the house was her child. And she went to look for her child, and the child was not there. And the child had been swept away, uh, swept away in these mud. And this woman spent hours and hours and hours searching and searching and searching for her child. And can you imagine the the stress she's going through, the agony she's going through. Anyone see my baby? Anyone see my baby? And then she spots in the mud this blanket. 
and she recognizes a blanket and she, she throws herself into the mud and she grabs hold of the blanket and then she, then she sobs because she's found her child. And she sobs because her child is miraculously still alive. And you can imagine this woman, she's just holding on to her child and hugging the child and she does not want to let this child go. Oh, she doesn't care the child is covered in muck. Her child is alive. Later on, she, she takes the child and she washes the child and, and then she does everything in her power to stop that child from getting lost in the mud again. It's a true story. And in many ways, that's a story of your salvation and, and my salvation if you're a Christian here tonight. Because we're like this helpless child, utterly, utterly helpless. And we're being swept away with the muck and the mud of this world and our sin. And our selfishness and our arrogance and this me-centered living, all the muck that the Bible calls sin, it's sweeping us away and away and away and we're utterly, utterly helpless. And we're heading towards death and then we're heading towards hell. And you know, God, God chucks himself into the mud. God steps into history, into our mucky, mucky world, and it's like he spots us. And he spots the blanket and he grabs hold of us and he, he pulls us to himself. And once he's found us, he just hugs us. And he hugs us and he hugs us. He won't let us go. Uh, at that moment in history, he, he doesn't care about the muck. Uh, later on, he'll wash us and he'll cleanse us. But he's found us and he's holding on to us and he's hugging us. And then he does everything in his power, everything in his power to stop us getting mucky again. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian gospel in, an, in a nutshell. And in many ways, that's Titus chapter 2. It's all about grace. All about what God has done, seeing us in our muck and saving us, and then teaching us not to go back into the muck again. And tonight's sermon is all about grace. Why does God rescue us? Because of his grace. What keeps us in his arms? His grace. And I've been struck recently by how often we make the Christian life just really complicated. We take a very, very simple truth that God sees us and spots us and grabs hold of us and loves us, not because we've done anything, but because of his grace. And we've just made it really, really complicated. And we've turned the gospel of grace into this complex web of rules and rituals and prayer lists and Bible reading schemes and church things and rosters and all this stuff, which are all good stuff, as long as you don't complicate the gospel of grace. And Titus wanted the church in Crete to understand grace. And my prayer is that you would understand grace. See, all the right relating we looked about last week, the older men, older women, younger men, younger women, that all the godly Christian behavior that Titus talks about is all motivated by grace. Did you spot that word in verse 11? That first word of verse 11, for or, or because, the grace of God. The reason that we live like this is because the grace of God has saved us. Everything flows from grace. And I do pray tonight you would be yeah, gripped by grace. 
pray tonight you would be liberated by grace and that you would leave here uh, delighting in God's grace. Because when you've understood biblical grace, it just floods your heart with thankfulness. And when you've understood biblical grace, it gives you this security because your identity is not in you anymore. It's in what God has done for you. And it wipes away your pride. It wipes away any hint that your works contribute in any way to God's affection. And when you understand grace, it makes you, um, it makes you intolerant. Intolerant. It makes you intolerant of sin in your own life. It makes you really intolerant of all the things in your life which you know offends Jesus because you've seen how wonderful he is and you don't want to upset him and offend him anymore. And when you've understood grace, you're kind of compelled towards godliness and you're compelled towards holiness. I just pray tonight's talk would, would simplify your faith again and would deepen your faith. And you leave here saying, wow, what a saviour. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll delve into Titus 2. Father, thank you. Thank you for the privilege of meeting. Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world tonight who are alone and isolated with no church to go to because of persecution. Pray that you would keep them steadfast in their faith. And we thank you that we can gather and we can sit under your scriptures and we can hear a sermon. We thank you for uh, sound systems and all those kind of things. Lord, I pray that as I speak tonight, you would address us. Please, Lord, speak through me by your spirit. Lord, help us to be gripped by grace tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First point tonight is this. Uh, grace saves you. God's grace saves you. It's a saving grace. You've got to understand the word salvation. It's there in verse 11. Look at it with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people, all men. Uh, the word salvation just means that you've been rescued. You've been saved from something. You've been saved from something and saved for something. So you've got to understand this because I fear some of us still don't get it. We assume that people in church know what it means to be saved. We assume that people understand the gospel of grace, but we don't. Look at the verse again. What brought you your salvation? Was it your birth? Was it your education? Was it your good looks? Was it your good works? Was it your biblical knowledge? Was it coming to church? Was it being a nice guy? Was it your fashion sense? Look at the verse. What brings you salvation? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. No one is saved because they are good or intelligent or, or wealthy or, or wise. That's called religion. How are you saved? The grace of God. Grace just means God's undeserved favor, God's unmerited love. It's God reaching out to you in your sinful state and seeing you and grabbing hold of you and saying, I'm bringing you home. That's his grace. So let's do some hard work in the text. Verse 11 is so, so important. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to, 
to all people. But literally, the literal order is for the grace of God that brings salvation to all people has appeared. That's what the verse literally says. The question is, where does that phrase, all people, go? See, see, the first one doesn't seem right. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. Because it hasn't appeared to all people. Because there are people still in this world who haven't heard about Jesus. But the second one doesn't seem right either. Because the grace of God that brings salvation to all people has appeared. Well, that's not true either. Because God hasn't saved all people. So what is the verse saying? Commentators have argued over where that phrase, all people go. The issue is not actually that. The issue is what does that phrase, all people, mean? Does it mean every man, woman, boy or child that's ever lived? No. More than not, the Bible uses that phrase, all people, to mean all kinds of people. All types of people. Young, old, rich, poor, men, women. And when you've grasped that, suddenly the verse makes complete sense. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all kinds of people. People who live in rural towns, people who live in megacities, university educated, people with no education. All kinds of people uh, have understood the grace of God. The second one makes sense. For the grace of God that brings salvation to all kinds of people has appeared because all kinds of people have been saved. I look at it, you. All kinds of people have been saved by the grace of God. And that is what salvation is all about. It doesn't matter what your class is or your race is or your gender is. God can save anybody by his grace. And I need to ask you right up front. If I said to you, are you saved? Have you been saved? What would you say to that? Has God seen you and reached out to you and opened your eyes to who Jesus is and said, yeah, Jesus is the son of God and he died for me. He took my place on that cross. Has God done that for you? Let me ask you another question. How has God saved you? Why has God saved you? Why you? Why you and not the person who lives next door? Why? Because of his grace. Because of his loving kindness that you deserve nothing, but he's just chosen you. That is God's grace. The issue with grace is that we sometimes think that grace is this theological concept (laughs) or this, this doctrine. And we kind of use the word grace a bit like that. It's a bit like it's a bit like Star Wars. Grace be with you. And you know, we say grace, and what does the word grace really mean? Well, look at the verse again. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is something that steps into the stage. Grace is something that can be seen. Grace is something that literally had an epiphany. That's what the word appears means. It had an epiphany, an epiphany of grace. Grace is this personal reality. Now, are you doing the sums? Are you joining the dots? When did grace appear? For the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. He is full of grace and truth. When did grace appear? God has always been gracious. For all of history, God is gracious. But at a moment in time, God revealed his grace 
through the person of Jesus Christ. Stop thinking that grace is just a concept. Grace is, is a person. And his name is Jesus. Grace is the personal God reaching out to save us in a selfless, pure love. That is grace. Please just retrain your brain. Not theological concept, not theological doctrine, but a person. Christ is grace. But your salvation, this saving grace, is not just about a past event. Sure, Jesus appeared, but he appeared what? For, for 33 years? And they disappeared. So where is grace now? Well, look at the uh, text again. You'll spot a second appearing, a second epiphany. It's there in verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing of glory, the epiphany of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is perhaps no other more beautiful an unambiguous declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ in the whole New Testament. He is our great God and Savior. He is the one who's able to save us. He is the one who has saved us. He is the Christ, the anointed one. And what it's saying here is that, uh, that we have been saved, and now we're just what? Verse 13, we're just waiting. We're waiting and we're longing. Waiting for what? A, a theological concept? No, we're waiting for the blessed hope. What is hope? not a concept, it's a person. Grace appeared in Christ. He's going to appear again in glory. And now we're just doing what? We're just waiting. We're just longing. We're just expecting. It's kind of like you live, live on earth going cross-eyed. One eye back to Calvary when grace first appeared. One eye looking forward to glory when he's going to appear. And now we're just waiting. Someone said to me, you live as though the cross was yesterday, the resurrection is today, and the return is tomorrow. Live each day as though the cross was yesterday, the resurrection is today, and the return is tomorrow. Live expectantly. But here's a confession. I can go for days and even weeks without thinking about the return of Christ. I'm good at looking back to Calvary. I'm good at every day being thankful for Calvary, but waiting for the return, longing and waiting for him to return. And Paul is saying here that we should almost live as, as though we're eight and a half months pregnant. All of us. The bags are packed. It could be today. It could be today. It could be today. That's what it means to be saved by grace. You're waiting and longing. But if you have been saved by grace... These verses are extraordinary because it changes your identity. If you've grasped grace, it changes who you are. If I said to you, who, who are you? What do you say? Oh, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm a psychologist, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm unemployed, I'm young, I'm old. Who are you? Well, look at these verses. It defines who you are. God's grace defines who you are. Verse 14, Christ gave himself for us, for his church. The word for gave himself is a, is a sacrificial word. He sacrificed himself willingly and voluntarily. He is our Passover lamb. His blood was shed. He gave himself on our behalf. And what does that mean? Who are you? Well, you can say, verse 14, 
I'm redeemed. He gave himself to redeem us, to rescue us, to ransom us. It's the language of, of Exodus. You've been redeemed from slavery. You've been liberated. You've been freed. From what? From all unwickedness. From all wickedness, rather. For all the, the lawless deeds, the things that you're gripped by, for the, the things of this world, the, the lies and the arrogance and the ugly thoughts and the sexual morality and the greed, you've been redeemed, you've been liberated by God's grace. And you can say, uh, verse 14, I'm purified, I'm cleansed. He's washed me, a bit like the, uh, uh, the child. The muck is gone. But the shock is at the end of that verse. He's redeemed us from all wickedness to purify himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. See, the shock is that if I had redeemed you, and if I'd cleansed you, and it had cost me the death of my own son, I think I would live the rest of my life kind of resenting you a bit. Because it had cost me so much. Or I'd live the rest of my life just making you feel a bit guilty because it cost me so much. Now how does God see you? What does the verse say? He's purified himself a people who are his very own. Literally a treasured possession. It's the, the words of Exodus 19. Precious to him. See, if you've been gripped by grace, if you've been saved by grace, you understand these truths. I am redeemed. I'm cleansed. I'm treasured. That's who I am. The God of this universe sees me like that. The Puritan John Owen said this, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. What more can God do to show you how much he loves you? What more can God do to show how gracious he's been and to send his own son? I've got to ask you, do you believe in a personal, passionate God who loves you? Do you believe in a God who's reached out to you and saved you because of his grace? Are you delighting in God's grace, saving grace each day? Or are you laying a burden on on your adopted father by questioning that each day you're saved by grace it doesn't matter what you've done he's saved you he's loved you he's rescued you he's redeemed you he's restored you he's purified you you're his child you're his very own that's what grace does it redefines you but if one mistake is to to leave grace as a sort of a concept or a doctrine I think a bigger mistake that we often make is to, to leave grace on the shelf, uh, to leave grace in the, the locker room, to leave grace in the changing room. You kind of you enter the pitch called the Christian life and you start to live the Christian life and play the game called the Christian life. But yeah, you're saved by grace, but you start to play by your own rules and you pick your own team and uh, you'll use your own skill and your own strength and score your own goals. And, and this passage says, no, What's so beautiful about grace is it, is it you're saved by grace and you live by grace. Grace saves you and grace teaches you. Grace saves you and grace transforms you. It's like that illustration I had at the beginning, the story at the beginning. 
It's like you've been rescued and God has washed away the muck. And now God is just teaching you every, every day, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. Transforming grace. Look again at verse 12. I'll read from verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. What's the it? Is the it a list of rules that you must do? Is the it a church you must attend? What's the it in that verse? Tell me. Grace. The grace of God that saved us is the same grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness or trains us to say no to ungodliness. I remember the first time I first understood this. I've been a Christian for a number of months. But I kind of hit that, that low in my Christian life. You know, where you're feeling burdened and tired and guilty. Because every time you go to church, you're told you must do all this stuff. And you leave here just weighed down and feeling I'm such a failure as a Christian. And then I understood Titus 2. Someone preached Titus 2 and it just hit me like smack between the eyes. I understood it teaches me. Grace teaches me. Uh, what do you mean God's grace didn't just stop at that moment in history where he saved me? No, no grace was going to accompany me every day of my Christian life. And grace was going to live with me every day of my Christian life. That's the greatest truth in the world, isn't it? It wasn't down to me and my efforts. The grace would transform me, not me. Grace, my saviour, had become grace, my teacher. And I kind of entered the school of grace. And I'd be a pupil in that school of grace until the day I died. It's such a simple concept, but it's so liberating. Because when your heart is so flooded with grace and you've understood who Jesus is, and you realize what you've been rescued from, you don't want to go back there. Because all the muck, all the mud has been washed away, and I'm clean. It's like if you're an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic, if you're a recovering alcoholic, if you've been redeemed from that, you just don't want to touch alcohol again. It's like if you're a drug addict and you've been rescued from that world, you just don't want to go back there. Same with sin. If we've been rescued from our ungodliness and our worldly passions, we just don't want to go back there. Now, here's the issue. Most of us here, I think, think that we are pretty good. We're not the alcoholic and we're not the drug addict. We're just nice, good, lower North Shore, mostly upper middle class people. And it didn't really cost God that much to rescue and redeem us because there wasn't that much to redeem us from. And we failed to see just what miserable sinners we really were. And we failed to see all all the mud and muck that's still under the fingernails and all the muck that's hidden under your clothes that you really know about but no one else really sees, but God sees. And we've kind of desanitized sin and we've lowered God's standards because, hey, we're Kiribili and we're nice people. But if you see your sin, if you see your muck, if you see your, your dirt, you will cry out to be consumed by God's transforming grace. 
What does grace teach us? Look at it with me. Verse 11, verse 12. It teaches us to say, to say no. To say no way. To stop at ungodliness and worldly passions. Grace will train you to say no to things. To say no to things that offend God. It will teach you to say no to worldly passions. To the lusts, to the cravings that, that shape our world to the things that belong to our society, and your mind will be trained to say, no, that's of the world. I want to live like God. When you read worldly passions, please don't just think sex. The grace of God will teach you to say no to, to worldly anger. It will teach you to say no to you know, the, the retaliation and the vicious words and the how dare you attitude. The grace of God will teach you to say no to hatred. How can you walk into a church and hate people, and avoid people, and hold grudges if you've been gripped by grace. Uh, the grace of God will teach you to say, to say no to, to worldly ambitions. You know, I must go on an overseas holiday, and I, and I must have that promotion, and I must own my house, because your identity is not in those things, it's in Christ. And the grace of God will teach you to say no to, to worldly materialism, because you don't need the bigger house, or the bigger TV, and you don't need to eat out three times a week. And yet, the grace of God will teach us to say no to worldly sex. You don't need to have sex to be somebody. And all the things that the world says are normal, all the things that we are surrounded by every day, every minute of every day, in billboards and radios and conversations and newspapers and movies and friends, all the worldly passions that have become the norm for our world, the grace of God suddenly shines a light on those things and we say, no, I'm not going to go there and I'm not going to live like that. But when was the last time that you said no to anything? When was the last time you said, you said no to, I don't know, to a, to a dinner party because you knew that the conversation there was going to be really ungodly? When was the last time you said no to going to see a movie because it was inappropriate? When was the last time you said no to people at work? I'm not going to join into that conversation because it's gossip. When was the last time you said no to anything? Francis Schaeffer said these words 30 years ago. We're surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. And when we're surrounded by this sort of mentality, then suddenly to be told that in the Christian life there's to be this strong negative aspect of saying no to things and no to self, it must seem hard. And if it doesn't feel hard to us, we're not really letting it speak to us. It is hard to live in this world and live differently but the grace will teach you to say no. But positively, it trains us to say yes. Look again at verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age whilst we're waiting. Remember, one eye back to grace, Calvary, one eye forward to glory, in this present age, we are living yes. I haven't said say no and say yes. I've said say no and, and live yes. Cause it's, it's that active, positive, living out your Christian life. Living a, a self-controlled life where your, your mind and your thoughts are in tune with God and you think about things that please him. And every day you live out an upright, just life. You treat others well. But most important, you live a godly life, a vertical relationship with God. You live in a relationship where you love God and you're dependent on God and you're walking closely with him and you're walking intimately with your God. 
do you want that? Do you want to walk intimately with God as your adopted father? Do you wake up each day and long to live a, a self-controlled, upright, and godly life and say, Lord, please today help me live a self-controlled, self upright, and godly life? Do you long for that? If you do, then grace has gripped you. But how are you going to do that? How are you going to live yes? How are you going to walk out this door and say no, 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 and yes, 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 yes? How about you go home tonight and you, you write down a list of the top ten things you've got to stop doing and the top ten things you've got to start doing? That's legalistic trash. That won't help you. How about you go home tonight and you... You make a promise you're going to read the Bible every single day for the next, next 12 months. It's a good thing to do, but that won't really transform you. Because you'll fail in six weeks' time, and then you'll feel a miserable failure. What is going to help you to, to say no and to live yes, and to say no and to live yes? It's the wrong question to ask. The question is, who is going to help you? Who's going to help you to say no and to live yes? And the answer is the grace of God. Who is the grace of God? Your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's so simple. The more you love Jesus, the more you say no to worldly passions. The more you love Jesus, the more you wake up each day and say, I want to live for you today. The more you love Jesus, the more the Spirit of God consumes you and says, that's got to go, and I want it to go. The more you fix your eyes on Jesus and love him, the more you wake up each day and the Spirit goes holding you and say, come on, Paul, you're my child, live differently. It's not a chore. It's not an effort. It's not a burden. Because your eyes are fixed on your Savior. And you want to live to please him. It's really summed up in the words of this song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and the light of his grace. And those two things go hand in hand. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you'll say no to sin and say yes to living rightly. I don't know whether you've ever seen an oak tree. In the winter, the leaves on an oak tree die. But they don't fall to the ground. They stick on the branches. And the winter winds don't blow them away. And the winter rains don't blow them away. They just sit there and sit there and sit there. And what causes those dead leaves to drop off? They don't drop off until springtime. And the new... Spring life appears. As a new spring life appears, it forces off all the dead leaves. That's like the Christian life, you know. When you start to live yes and live differently, then it forces you to say no to stuff and all the dead stuff goes from your life. But the way you do that is to do what? To look at the person who gave you life. To look at the person who redeemed you and rescued you. It's what the Puritans call the, the power of, of the new affections. 
Friends, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a real person. He lived, he taught, he died, he was raised. He loves you. And Jesus has told you, this is who I am, this is what I love, this is what I want you to do. And all we're called to do is just to fix our eyes on him. Spend time every day just meditating on who Jesus is. And when you fix your eyes on Jesus, on his grace, believe me, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Because you'll realize that he is your all. And he's so precious to you. And you're just waiting. And you're waiting. And you're waiting for that blessed hope when you see him in all his glory. See how beautiful grace is? Grace protects you from legalism. Grace propels you towards godliness. Grace forces you to fix your eyes off yourself and onto Jesus because you're saved by grace. You're transformed by grace. It's all about grace because it's all about Jesus. I want to ask you tonight, do you love Jesus? Has Jesus loved you? Has Jesus just opened your eyes and said, look, I am the one who has rescued you and has redeemed you? Because I believe there are people here tonight who maybe have not understood grace. And you come here every week and you think that you're doing okay, but actually you've never understood grace. Tonight is a great night. A great night just to, to look upwards and say, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. But for many of us, we've done that before. But what we need to learn tonight is this. You start by grace, you're saved by grace. But every day you live by grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We're going to sing this song. Please only sing your song if you've been gripped by grace and you want to wake up tomorrow morning so in love with your Savior that you want to live differently and say no and live yes. And the way to do that is to fix your eyes on him.